This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. And in this episode, Zigo co-founder Sten Saar once thought he had the startup Midas touch. And although his insurtech unicorn would suggest he's still got it, he had to learn some painful lessons along the way. By the time I was 21, I uh, turned over $1 million back then and uh, had a team of 22. So it was uh, like a huge success in that regard and profitable business as well, hugely profitable. But then I invested into many other projects like a national newspaper for university students and so forth. I, and I got so bullish even that I asked my dad to take a mortgage, give the money to me, which I then invested into a project. And six months later, I had no money and no project left. Sten Saar, co-founder and CEO of Zigo. Thanks so much for joining me on the Tech podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, I know this is an audio podcast, but I can, I can see you and you're indoors, so I can't really tell how things are where you are. But, but you're in London, I think. Uh, everything going all right? Yes, I'm in London. And um, uh, at the moment, it's pretty cold for Easter, but uh, sunny day. So uh, all good here at the moment. I'm quite envious. It's just kind of spiked up to 30 odd degrees here where I am. So uh, we're already... <sighs> Already feels like August. Um, but look, we, you and I met, I think, first time, only briefly. I think I was on stage kind of uh, uh, helping hand you an award at uh, the Paris Fintech Forum. I think it was 2018. Um, yes. And your thing at, at Zigo then, at the start at least, was, I think, fractional insurance for gig workers like Uber drivers. So perhaps you can just tell us kind of how, how you got going with Zigo, what the idea was, and perhaps how it's evolved into what it is today. Sure. So Zigo started um, like four and a half years ago when um, um, I used to work at Deliveroo, my co-founder, and there was a real problem of um, being able to insure the delivery drivers because the commercial insurance is like three, four times more expensive than normal insurance. And um, they just couldn't find enough drivers quick enough. Uh, And especially when you think about food deliveries, you've got those real spikes at dinner time for a couple of hours uh, when people order and even being able to hire part-time people just wasn't feasible and the main reason was insurance and then we naively thought that well if why can't you just pay for insurance when you work so when you work you pay when you don't work you don't pay made a lot of sense we told lots of people they said it's a great idea we told lots of insurers who said it's a terrible idea <laughs> until we found one who was like uh, okay let's give it a go and then uh, in about three and a half months we um built the product, got the insurer going, got regulated and launched uh, August 2016. And so you started started off with uh, like another insurer kind of taking all the risk and then, you know, evolved into like an underwriter yourself later on? Yes, exactly that. I mean, today we still, we have our own underwriting capability and work with others. But at the time we purely started as a using simple terms, just as a broker. And, um, and that's how we got going. And it was very, very difficult to find someone to give you any underwriting capacity when you say that, hey, I want to charge 
uh, I don't know, 50 cents an hour, but the maximum claim can be 40 million. And just people could not comprehend this. Uh, because often the way you think about vehicle insurance, you you pay your annual um, uh, vehicle insurance, but the insurer assumes you only drive on average 2% per year. So if we are now saying that you're 100% insured and fractionally charged, they just can't, the underwriting logic just does not apply. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, we started then, uh, great product market fit grew rapidly and um, we then did the same product for cars we did it for uh, ride hailing and then we've now done the same for commercial fleets so essentially for us we insure anyone um, any commercial customer ranging from large enterprise fleets all the way through to self-employed drivers and um, very simply it's like we insure from one hour all the way through to one year whatever works best for you and it doesn't matter for us whether you're self-employed enterprise uh, at the end of the day there's a driver on a road um, uh, with a vehicle going from a to b moving either parcels of food or, or people and that's what we focus on and in terms of the risks i mean yeah I, I guess you can one can understand how a traditional insurer would find this a real head scratcher because they're used to kind of working out okay x amount of people are going to make x amount of claims we're going to charge you know y amount and therefore we're going to make you know z amount of money right uh, and so when it comes to this as you say if you're if someone's just literally paying 50 cents or uh, whatever a pound or whatever the case may be for an hour's worth of insurance and yet they can still claim i, I mean is it simply a question of you know uh, amalgamating all of those many thousands of uh, drivers to kind of you know create enough of uh, scale to, to make it worthwhile to kind of for them to be able to work out the the risks and whatever forms their actuarial models take well it's um it, um at the end of the day the, let's say the number of claims out there is the same the way you structure insurance or you charge insurance, the, the number of drivers out there or claims out there is the same. Let's say, let's call it like a thousand uh, pounds worth of uh, claims. Now, you, how you then charge that thousand, there's many ways how you can structure it, right? And we've structured it that it's more accommodating for the customers who want to work part-time. And also, um, we've structured it by gathering the data so that... Uh, we ensure more the better drivers. We know who are the uh, better drivers, so that all the like not as good drivers uh, on the road they can be insured by traditional insurance companies, and that's how you make it work ultimately. Because very simply, you've got let's say ten drivers out on the road, and two of the drivers are driving majority of the losses, whereas eight are good drivers. So if you understand who are those eight, then you can reduce the cost for those eight. Um, and uh, that's very simply how it works. So, so you were avoiding the kind of the ones that were likely to claim rather than say, I guess in a traditional policy, you know, if you're a great driver, you might pay 500 pounds a year and I might, as a bad driver, I might pay a thousand pounds a year. But I guess if you're charging someone one pound and then the other person one pound 50, it's not quite the same, quite the same thing. So you would just avoid them to try to avoid like, you know, claims reduction rather than, uh, uh, rather than, you know, uh, kind of just increasing the price. Well, um, one of the products is like hourly products. If somebody works full time, then very similar, like you said, 500 or, or 500 uh, or 1000, that the same uh, kind of applies. But if you add all those hours up, it'll still be a meaningful spend. So if uh, someone, I don't know, makes 12 pounds an hour and they pay for insurance 50 cents versus two pounds, it's a significant kind of a difference. 
So in order to pay less, you have to drive better. Um, so, um, and that's what we take into account based on behavior. Uh, and if you're a great driver, then we reduce it. If, if you're not, then it goes up. And then at some point, you'll be more efficient for that uh, worst driver to go and be insured by our competitor first. Right. And uh, I understand that all, how many people are working uh, with you now at Zigo? Yes, so we've got uh, latest numbers this morning of 275 people. Okay. And, and do you call, you call them Zigons, is that right? We call them Zigons, yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and just to kind of clarify, I mean, I mean you, you've got, it's kind of like the most flexible insurance policies out there for, for drivers. I mean, that's your kind of USP, the way you differentiate yourselves from, you know, any other uh, providers of, uh, of car or uh, motor insurance? That's one of the elements, yes. So let's say you are a, you decide to be a, let's say, a, a, a food delivery driver and you don't know whether you're going to like this job or not, then you can start by just buying hourly policies. And then you realize, you know what, this summer I want to be working full time and I want to work, make a lot of money over the next three months. And then you buy, let's say, three one-month long policies. And then um, you decide that actually I don't want to work for a month, I'll go on traveling, then you don't have any policy. And then you decide and come back that actually now I want to work only in the evenings and uh, just weekends, then you buy the hour. So what we're doing is we're giving you the full flexibility to pick the policy that you prefer. And it can be that you just only work one or two hours every Friday evening, or you are working 40 hours a week for the rest of the year. And that's the kind of beauty. And without any additional charge, you can just change and swap the, the products. And presumably it hasn't gone unnoticed by bigger insurers or perhaps even insurtechs that have got deep pockets that this is something that seems to be working. Have you noticed uh, people, let's say, paying homage to your, uh, to your <laughs> business model and, uh, and seeing that that's having an effect? Um, definitely. It's kind of a drawn a decent amount of attention to what we're doing um it's that uh, with large insurers the challenge is the infrastructure just doesn't enable to do what we're doing they would have to build that infrastructure from scratch because the way their contracts are set up and infrastructure and every risk understanding is set up based on annual policies so if if i'm an insurance selling your policy then i've got several middlemen who charge me the insurance company based on that being an annual policy so if you're now saying I'm selling you a, a week-long policy, they don't know how to vary that price. And they just, like it does just not does not compute. Flow. Exactly. It <laughs> does not compute. does not go through the system. So they, although they really want them, they're smart people, they can't because of the infrastructure. And um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, insurtechs, it's a complex product that we also offer. It's not like a phone, mobile phone insurance that you know the exact cost. Like, as I said, the largest claim... It can be like tens of millions. Our largest claim is like uh, 12 million uh, uh, pounds at the moment. You know, so it's it's not uh, that it's like a limited cost as well. So that makes it a lot more complex to to get it right. And this is a question I don't often ask uh, people. Maybe I should ask it more because most of the people we have on the FN Tech podcasts are co-founders. Um, they're usually the CEO as well, but they're co-founders. So they're part of a double act usually. I mean, one instance, I think with Fintonic, they actually got three CEOs. But, um, you know, your co-founder is Harry Franks. I mean, how did you meet? What is it that you kind of, are you very different and you just kind of like complement each other? Or are you kind of like exactly the same on the same page with everything? How does it work? 
so we started out the business together and we used to work together at um, one fine stayers where we met and then we from there um, went kind of separate ways and ended up working together at Deliveroo as well and uh, that's when we went to set up um, uh, Ziga. So um, initially Harry was um, um, CEO and I was COO and uh, that's how we kind of started the business and uh, it was probably kind of about uh, two years in when it was um, um, like it was really having a kind of a um, impact on how we built the business and business had outgrown uh, some of the uh, kind of a skills and then we sat down what's the best for the business uh, and that's one of the philosophies we all apply what is best for the business and um, Harry felt that look it's it's best that um, I uh, take over from here and he focuses on what he's very very good at which is kind of insurers and and BD side of things and um, that's what we did and uh, since then uh, I've been um, running a CEO and then uh, Harry's been looking after that side of um, uh, the relationships um, so yeah, and, and I think just to note that that's very unusual uh, because often like people leave and uh, egos get in, in the way and so forth but whereas we've been always put the business first you know like no one is greater than the business one of our values is that no vehicle is greater than a fleet right so you see ego before ego and that's what we live by and so it was all like very amicable, wasn't it? like the board said, OK, you've got to take Harry's place and, you know, replace him. And then it kind of causes bad blood or. No, it was the opposite. We went to the board and said, look, we're doing this change. And they were like, oh, OK. Um, and of course, I mean, they didn't have very many options, right, because we had made the decision. Right. And. I guess this is a hard, I, mean, I don't mean this with any disrespect to Harry or anything, but, but in general, what, when you're co-founding, it's obviously easier because you're not just taking all the weight on your own shoulders. You've got complementary skills. You're, you know, I guess on the same page and you have a healthy disagreement on things that, uh, you know, uh, when perhaps you might have differences of opinion on, on the way things should go. But I mean, do you think that such a business that you've created at Zigo, that, that one of you could have done it on your own without the other? Definitely not. Like, I mean, that's uh, <clears throat> that's how we started it, right? So uh, business would have not started with either of us probably at the time, right? And um, and um, this 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 is life, and um, um, yeah, I, I guess the the thing what people don't often acknowledge is that at different stages, business needs different skills. Right. The people who start the businesses often don't kind of run the businesses later on. And there's very, very few examples who, who can manage that because that requires you changing the way you operate every month or two months in a rapidly growing company. And, um, and often why those things break is because egos get in the way. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, like the same applies with me. Um, if I'm the best person to run the business today, I may not be in the future, right? So we, it, it will, we will see when we hit that kind of a, a challenge and I will always do what's best for the business and I expect everyone in Zigo to do what's best for the business. And you see that with a lot of like people within the uh, organizations as well, if you're in a rapidly growing environment because companies are often growing faster, especially kind of fast growing fintechs than uh, people are able to develop, right? And just that, that I, I don't think that's an exception or should be an exception to any founder or 
anyone in any, including board members. You know, so. Right. And how you mentioned the business, um, fast growing business. Uh, how is business these days? Can you perhaps give us uh, give us some of the numbers? Yes. Yeah, so um, we were hit quite hard by COVID as uh, most of the market were. So we very quickly had to kind of uh, adapt and kind of a uh, review our uh, cost base and so forth because like we insure vehicles and vehicles don't move and we're in lockdowns then we don't make much income but delivery drivers were probably presumably working overtime and there were more of them wouldn't that have offset any uh, kind of decline in perhaps let's call them normal um vehicles and driving yeah, yeah yes absolutely like but that uh, is like uh, part of our business was ride hailing ride hailing also stopped like completely whereas then it took a few weeks because restaurants were shut down so then they started to get their takeaway uh, systems in order and then slowly started to ramp up so yeah so it was kind of a, a, a proper v for us in a sense and um and we've like since the first wave we've kind of more than more than doubled uh we've doubled the team um since then so um, it was a kind of big, quick hit. We reviewed our cost base. We reviewed our, did many product changes. We like, for example, developed a new product in nine days when normally they say in insurance, it takes 12 to 18 months to develop a product. And um, so we really focused on the customer to design what they really need. And, uh, and then, yeah, since then we saw a significant growth and we are well over a hundred million dollar run rate business. And uh, team is, I'd say, twenty seventy-five people, which we doubled over the last year. And uh, you recently raised, uh, I think, it was one hundred and fifty million dollars, uh, uh, turning you into a unicorn. I think I, I saw you describe yourself as a reluctant unicorn. Uh, has that made any change at all? I mean, you're only human. You can't help but think, like, at least a part of you think, "Oh wow, look, you know, if if and when this gets sold or IPO'd, you know, I'm 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 sorted for the rest of my life or something." I mean, how, how does it make you feel? How does it? change the way people are working there everything the same or or just you know <clears throat> carrying on that well that was that's one of the things for me is it um people think that when you achieve unicorn status then you've done it you made it no like uh and i'm sure we've seen many other stories where they've achieved that and then a year or two later they've lost that so it's uh to me, it's very important that um, we don't just focus on that vanity metric too much because we are here to build a great uh, company for our customers. As long as we continue to do so, we will be doing well. If we focus on vanity metrics and all the other things, IPOs, vanity metrics, or unicorns, then we lose sight of what, why we're here for. And um, in that sense, um, that's why I call us kind of reluctant unicorn. And you mentioned on IPO as well, like for us, this is a gas station on the way up to edinburgh let's say it's it's on on the way there it just serves a purpose to fuel the car it's not the destination itself and uh, otherwise i mean it's um, i mean i still uh, enjoy the same uh, uh, tea drink uh, food uh, still do same exercise so nothing has changed in that sense it's, it's more like um, more the opposite more 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 pressure is now on more eyes is on us to deliver more and better so that the expectations have increased um, right. I guess it's harder to uh, also fly under the radar as well when you uh, start getting that big. But I want to talk a little bit uh, about you now, um, Sten, if I may. Uh, sure. You're Estonian um, and Estonia are actually very well known for being incredibly advanced technologically wise in terms of government uh, and the way that it does things uh, as a country. Uh, d- does that extend, again, figure my ignorance, does that extend all the way down to kind of universities and schools? Is there kind of like, you know, tech 
coursing through the veins of all Estonians? I don't think it was until probably um, 20 years ago when Estonia um, became independent again. And um, then there was a sense of like, right, let's prove to the world our worth. But then Estonia doesn't have much in terms of kind of a natural assets, no mountains, no oil, none of that, right? So, so what is this thing that we can kind of uh, be differentiated by? And um, it's also a very small country, like just uh, 1.3 million people. So it's very, very tiny. And it's a great uh, size for lots of MVPs. And, I, and, and no infrastructure existed. So if you think about Western uh, Europe uh, banks and uh, insurers, the systems are from like 60s and 70s. Back then, nothing existed. So it was very good to actually start building something from scratch. And I think that's what Estonia did. Small country, start building from scratch, MVP size market, and off you go and you develop. And that's how it's kind of uh, digitalized a lot of it. And then they realized it's actually quite straightforward. Let's do more of it. And uh, that's how it got the attention, in my opinion. And then the, the additional benefit of <clears throat> Skype being part of it, Skype being success, the money coming back to startups, then the other wave of like the uh, transfer devices and um, a few others. And then now it's just kind of breeding more and more uh, startup environment. I, I, I moved to the UK in 2009. And when I compare what the startup landscape was back then and what it is now, it's significantly kind of a more lively and uh, more appreciated as an industry itself. You know? Right. And I, I tried to do the maths and forgive me if I'm out, but uh, I, from what I could gather, you, you were about six when, the, uh, when Estonia regained its uh, independence. Uh, do, you have, do you have any memories of how it was before then and for you and your family? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, yes, uh, five, yes. I was five when we regained independence. And um, it was... Um, I mean, I can't remember exactly the moments. Apparently, I was part of the Baltic uh, kind of a chain where people were holding hands, uh, but I've got no memory of that. Um, and um, but so this was a remind me. I, I have vague memories of this myself. It was a, like a what was this ch- human chain for? Yeah, it was a human chain. Uh, people holding hands all the way from uh, Tallinn across the country to Latvia to Lithuania, so three Baltic states, hundreds of kilometers long. And um, that was a kind of big symbolic moment. And um, that's uh, whoever Estonian has kind of a, was born, they'll always mention that about the regaining independence moment. And um, but otherwise, it was a nice kind of a happy, uh, cheerful uh, childhood. I lived in the middle of the country, where in a town where there's ten thousand people. Then I moved to the capital when I was about ten, Tallinn, and then uh, I went to several universities. Uh, played volleyball for eight years. I thought I'm going to be the professional volleyball player. Um, and then uh, when I was 17, I thought, let's 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 try this thing called Student Company, uh, which is a kind of young enterprise school program, which which my entrepreneurial career started essentially. 
Right. Well, I want to come back to your entrepreneurial career in just a moment. So uh, don't go away, Sten, because uh, I just need to remind our audience that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www www.parisfintechforum.com. So Sten, you started telling us uh, about your first taste of uh, entrepreneurship aged 17. Can you uh, tell us more about that? What was the company? What did it do? Was it a success? Did you fall flat on your face? Mm. So um, I was still in high school um, and there's a school program called Young Enterprise and also it's, it's quite wide in Europe as well. What it means, you can mimic the kind of a normal company and there's a uh, own little trade shows and all the other things, but it's not the real company. So I wanted to experience that. And uh, I told uh, three of my uh, school friends and then we said, yep, let's do it. And then we went to put in the application and there was a kind of a field you had to uh, fill in, which is what is your product or service? And then we looked at each other like, oh, we want to do a company, but we don't know what we want to actually do. Uh, so we then brainstormed for two weeks what we want to do. And then we came up with a product, essentially a, a normal paper notepad. But inside the covers, we put study aids like maths, physics, chemistry, and so forth. So uh, normally, you've got very kind of a big books. Instead of going and finding a particular formula, we just put it inside the covers. So you can easily find them. And then nice designs and so forth. And uh, that's that was the idea. Very simple. Uh, we did the student company program for a year. It was a success. We um, uh, we were kind of runners up at the national competition, and then we thought, well, let's let's turn into a real business. So the moment um, turned eighteen, we then set up the legal entity limited company, and then uh, took it from there. So over the next couple of years, it grew. We grew from many retail shops across the country. Uh, I then expanded the business to other formal countries. So we're operating across the Baltics and Finland. And by the time I was 21, I uh, turned over $1 million back then and uh, had a team of 22. So it was uh, like a huge success in that regard and profitable business as well, hugely profitable. Um, and But then I invested into many other projects like uh, national newspaper for university students and so forth. I, and I got so bullish even that I asked my dad to take a mortgage, give the money to me which I then invested into a project. And six months later, I had no money and no project left. And so there's been like, the notebook business was a huge success and then many subsequent kind of failure stories. And um, So but, you sold um, the, the notebook business, you, you sold in the end, right? You had a, yes. a successful exit? I, I did sell it, but like people, yeah, I, I sold it to management uh, for a few thousand by taking the cash out and giving over the company. So I, w I wouldn't consider this as a huge exit, but the business is still going, which is great. And, uh, and um, uh, yeah, there's with new management, new ownership. And, and sorry, what were your other projects? Perhaps you can tell me the most dismal failure that, uh, that then ensued. And I really yeah. need to know what your dad said to you after you blew his mortgage money. <laughs> I did have to keep paying it back. So I think I paid it for another eight years. Uh, but uh, on that particular project, so what it was, imagine like Twitter, but uh, back then, like 2004, five, um, there was, uh, well, like seven, eight as well. There was this flash was a big thing. 
and um, we imagine post-it stickies on a virtual wall by Twitter on it. So you were constantly posting new information. Uh, it was wild. Um, we actually bought the project in one of the markets we operated for like 2,000 pounds or something. And it had uh, organic use, uh, users, a lot of them, like 60, 70,000. And then uh, I thought, well, let's put steroids in it and then just put all this mortgage money in there. And it just, just didn't work. Um, that was wild. Well, yeah. Just a bad product, too early. Uh, Twitter um, came along and people thought, what do we need um, Sten's post-it version? For? I think we what we did was like, we just developed this in a box. So we took like, oh, here's a car. People love this car. And now we're developing a supercar. And we wanted to develop the supercar until it's fully finished and then show it to the people. So of course, throughout that period, you, you burned all the money. And then when you put it out there, had no traction because no one really wanted that supercar. Um, so um, that was a classic example and uh, a great experience for me, how not to do things. And at the same time, I think I had got to the stage where I was like, whatever I touch turns into gold. So if I want to do this, it turns into gold. What I, if I want to do that, it turns into gold. So that was a bit of a good kind of a come 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 back on earth kind of reality moment, uh, which uh, a lot of entrepreneurs get um, quite late. So I'm very pleased I got those learnings early on in my career. So I don't do these mistakes when the stakes are significantly higher at Zigo or some other companies. And how much did you end up owing your father and have to pay back? Um, it was about 100,000. Uh, pounds back then yeah wow that's uh, quite a lot for a, a young entrepreneur and so so you, what you took some I mean I know you went to university um, in Tallinn you, you took some time um, to perhaps you know uh, regroup and to then come back with Zigo or was there something else in between so actually I did the uni while I was doing my own company so um, I um, I don't well, to be completely honest, I didn't participate in very many lectures, but I, I took part of all the exams. But I did the economics. So, like for example, there was a two lectures about uh, uh, factoring with bank, but I had to set up factoring for my company. So I knew every single answer to the granular detail of how factoring works. So it was actually lots of learnings I was able to transfer, which made uh, that experience uh, a lot more easier. Um, but um, after I had this notebook success, the big failures, I had this sense of urge or need of like wanting to build a great company. And it was almost like, can I build a great company? And then um, I was like, where can I go where people speak English and it's closest? And uh, that was London. So I bought one-way ticket six months ahead and uh, then started to hand over the company and then and moved here in 2009. I then tried to do the same here, uh, but the school system is very different. Station is given for free. You don't have to buy that. didn't work. I also ran out of money, so I was like, I need to pay some rent. So I then joined a company as a business development person who was doing outsourcing. There I uh, uh, wanted to grow the business significantly, um, and there was great kind of experience there. After that, I then came across one fine state, like um, Airbnb, high-end Airbnb, essentially, and uh, that was a VC-funded business. That was the first time where I experienced kind of an on-steroids environment in a good way. I, at some point, I had to hire 240 people in two weeks and just for three-week period. So how do you do that at scale? 
was a great learning. <laughs> and uh, after three and a half years there, I joined and Deliveroo, where um, these guys were growing like 25% week on week. And how do you take a team of five to 60 in five weeks whilst also making it more scalable and efficient? And, uh, and that's kind of where the Zigo story essentially started. Right. Uh, well, I want to come back to, I'll come back with a question relating to Deliveroo uh, in just a moment. But uh, in terms of Zigo, I mean, you're still a pretty young company. You're already a unicorn. Uh, where do you go from here? What, what's, the, what's the plan? What's the ambition? What's the timeline? So my plan is to build the next global insurance company, like uh, do what AXA and Allianz have done, but instead just do it with, if AXA and Allianz have 150,000 people, do that with like maybe five or 10,000 people. Um, I think the world deserves a proper 21st century insurance company that instead talking about insurance, when we roll our eyes, we actually, you know, I bought insurance to solve my problem and uh, it's a good, good experience. Um, and um, that's, uh, that's what I'm here to solve. And, and I feel like we've been given this opportunity by insurance getting so much attention from investors, mobility space getting so much attention from investors. And we just happen to be in that space. So there's, I feel, a sense of duty and responsibility to write this out as far as possible and to offer those solutions for our customers uh, to millions and millions around the world. And that's the kind of longer, longer term plan here. Um, there's, of course, many, many hurdles and steps in between that we have to get across. And uh, it's like two steps forward, one back. That's that's how startups are being built. You know? Right. I, I mean, you're not the only insurtech uh, that wants to build a 21st century uh, insurer. Indeed, not the only one that's been on this podcast. We've had Lemonade on, we've had Hippo on, we've had GetSafe on. These are all 21st century, you know, um, technology first uh, insurtechs that are trying to do something similar, not in exactly the same way, and perhaps not, you know, from the same angle as you, but but you know, still in that ballpark. Uh, is there room for all of you? Are you all going to be able to build the kind of alliances and axes of the twenty first century? Is there is there enough room for all of you? Um, we'll see. I mean, the the thing is that uh, every, like if you don't have an ambition, then um, yeah, if you don't want to kind of a get to the moon, then uh, you'll never have an, even an opportunity to get to the moon. And if you add all of the InsurTech founder ambitions together, then the, the market needs to be like 50 trillion, although it's 5 trillion today. So um, there'll be definitely kind of a bigger and smaller successes as part of that. Um, like if you think about, if you compare some of the other companies, if you look at how much money we had raised before that, and uh, milestones we had achieved, we've been very capital efficient and we've been uh, like in many kind of uh, including loss ratios, uh, LTV, CAC, many of those metrics, when you look at them, uh, we've been very, very effective is probably the best way to put it. And uh, I much more prefer growing uh, two, three times year and year over the next 10 years rather than five, six for a couple of years. The compound effect will be significantly greater um, but uh, we'll see, you know, uh, I, I truly feel that the problems for our customers exist where where they can save uh, time and money on, on insurance is so relevant. And it's, it's our duty founders as founders to kind of solve those problems. Right. And I think I, I've seen you, we mentioned briefly the possibility of an IPO. I know you said it's just a, another 
petrol station on the way to uh, to Edinburgh or wherever it is that you're driving. Uh, can you give us a sense now you are worth more than a billion? I'm sure your investors are, you know, perhaps thinking at some point that they would, uh, you know, want to uh, uh, you know, realize their investment. Uh, do you think what, like a year, two years, five years? Do you have any kind of inkling at all as to when that might happen? Um, we'll see. Like uh, often, like especially when you see at the moment, um, we get lost in the world of IPOs and SPACs and uh, um I think companies should never, it's, it's the same with fundraise, like companies should do it when it makes sense and when it actually enables and, and uh, to achieve their company's mission. So if somebody's doing it just for the sake of it, it's, it's not going to end well. Like if a company is not ready, you do it too early, it's a problem. If a company doesn't actually need any, any of that, then there's a problem, right? You're just forcing something through. And in that sense, I don't think we are ready today. Will we be ready in um, in a year or two or three? Possibly, um, but we will kind of uh, make that call when when we get closer to that. Within that, I mean, what I can safely say, probably within the, it's highly likely that in the next five years we have done an IPO because it's also, um, it long term it adds great value because the increases trust, increases uh, better access to capital, and so forth. But um, it just needs to be the right time for the company. While we're on the subject, uh, we just recently saw the uh, IPO of Deliveroo, which uh, listed its shares in London. And I know that, you know, the London Stock Exchange and the UK are terribly happy that uh, companies seem to be in the vanguard of of technology and kind of what's going on in the world these days was listing in London rather than choosing uh, NASDAQ or, or some other um, uh, exchange. Uh, and yet it got hammered on the first day, um, making some people think, well, maybe London isn't the best place for a tech IPO. Maybe it should just be NASDAQ because... You know, institutions in London just don't seem to get it. Um, do you think that what happened to Deliveroo, which I know you used to work at, and I'm sure you've still got lots of uh, friends mm-hmm. there, do you, do you think what happened might put off tech companies from from listing in London, from having its IPO in the UK? Um, well, the first, like, if you take a month or so ago when um, I was talking to founders, they were all thinking and looking Amsterdam as the place to go because London was so rigid in terms of its rules and regulations until the government said and uh, Ron Khalifa's review that we should do changes in, in their kind of a process. Um, and that everyone made kind of a take a pause for a moment, hang on, let's, let's see what, what comes from here. But again, the timing is very important because it's everyone's minds at the moment. Um, where and how you're going to list and, and when and so forth. Um, but I think um, the, first of all, if we look at the kind of delivery itself, delivery has over the last, uh, what, seven, eight years built a kind of a, a five billion uh, pound company, right? Although it went, uh, came down 30% on, uh, on the first day or so, it's built a significant business and presence, which is incredible for the founders, investors, and, and employees there. Um, I think the one data point is too small to make a call on this, quite frankly. Uh, and um, like, uh, it of course makes people slightly more cautious, but um, it's uh, the same could have happened um, uh, in other markets and you could see them happening. So I think it's too early to say. I think the expectation was very high. The same way, like uh, everyone has a high expectation for the New Year's Eve, and because the expectation is so high, you're going to be often uh, disappointed more than not. 
and there was a huge expectation for this to be a huge success. And I think uh, that just the disappointment came because of the expectation. With New Year's Eve pretty much always being a disappointment, uh, one would hope <laughs> that, uh, that this isn't uh, too much like uh, New Year's Eve and the, that it's always going to be that way. Uh, I'm guessing that, that you might have been watching the share price closely. Presumably you had some uh, uh, payday uh, from, that, from the IPO, perhaps? Um, uh, no, I was in a slightly different contractual setup uh, okay. back then. <laughs> but uh, lots of my great uh, uh, f- uh, friends have been, uh, and and some Mozigo employees who came from Deliveroo have been very excited about this. So, right, okay. Well, uh, you know, obviously, w- w- when uh, Zigo um, takes the plunge, I guess that'll be the uh, the day to break out the champagne for you. But um, look, just one final question, uh, Sten, uh, and this is something that I ask all people that come on the FNTech podcast, and that is, what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done? In your life, when I was young, I um, I played I, I learned to play an accordion um, because my granddad used to play. So I was like, that was like, you need to know how to play an accordion because your granddad did, and I can't. So you need to. Uh, That's one of the weird instruments I've learned to play. Um, I've done loads of it? woodwork. Sorry, you can still play it. One half song, yes. <laughs> what, what's What's the song? I can't even name this. It's just one oh. melody that I can actually play. I wish I'd have given you the heads up and you could have brought it on and, and played us <laughs> a few bars. But look, uh, Sten, we, we're kind of out of time, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me uh, on the FNTech podcast. And uh, great to see your company grow from you know what was very, very early on uh, when I saw, met you on stage at the Paris FNTech Forum, I think three years ago. Um, and uh, and seeing where it is today. So uh, thank you, Sten Sarko, founder and CEO of Zigo. Thank you for having me. You know, when you think every business you touch turns to gold, when you've blown your dad's mortgage money on failed projects and you're £100,000 in debt, you could be forgiven for thinking that maybe you're just not cut out for entrepreneurship. And although Sten Saar learned a valuable lesson in hubris, he was able to channel those disappointments into Zigo. With business booming and investors valuing the company at more than a billion dollars, there's every chance he'll fulfill his ambition of creating a great company and a 21st century insurtech that, in his words, the world deserves. So thank you, Sten Saar, and thank you for listening to the FNTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.